I'm Madalika Sika, and this is 52 Weeks, 52 Books, 52 Women, the podcast. Recently, I had the pleasure of interviewing Tina Brown, legendary editor of Tatler, Vanity Fair, and The New Yorker. Her newly published book, The Vanity Fair Diaries, chronicles her time at the magazine in the 1980s, when she took this historic but moribund title and brought it roaring back to life and prominence. The diaries sharply and caustically comment on the gilded age of 1980s New York, with the perfect mix of wit and insight. We spoke at the newly opened branch of my local independent bookstore, Politics and Prose at the Wharf, in front of an audience. I've read it very closely. <laughs> um, it was really fun. Um, now, as you heard Brad say, Tina is the legendary magazine editor turning around storied um, publications in her career. Uh, she's from Britain, as you know, as am I, and I've been aware of her for a very long time from the very early days of her time at Tatler. And when I came to America, I, of course, subscribed to Vanity Fair that she ran. Um, now, what you know about Tina is the things you've heard. She's incredibly smart, successful, high-charging. So you won't be surprised that she writes in the introduction to the book that when she was in high school, she committed what she describes as crimes of attitude, um, which meant that uh, she didn't always stay in those schools, <laughs> but still managed to get herself to Oxford and become the young editor of the Tatler, and then she came to conquer New York. So you might be surprised to, to hear that she wrote in her diary, um, when she arrived in New York, very successful, she landed in New York, quote, brimming with fear and insecurity. My London bravado began to evaporate. Tell us about that. <laughs> well, first of all, can you all hear me? Yes. It's very exciting to be here in this amazing new store. Brad, thank you so much. It, it, it feels, you know, it's vibrating with newness and, and, and uh, a sense that this is an ex a happening place to be. So thank you so much for having me in this new um, store. It's, it's wonderful. And to be with Madalika, who is uh, someone I admire enormously from her NPR days, and she's a great uh, tastemaker herself. So thank you for that. Well, my bravado evaporated because, you know, I thought I was in the capital of the world in London, you know, thrumming London, um, Mrs. Thatcher's London, as it was when I was editing Tatler. And we had a little team of sort of insurgent editors and writers, and we made Tatler, in our terms, very successful. We took it from 10,000 to 100,000, and it was bought by mighty Condé Nast. But then, you know, I, when I heard that Vanity Fair was launching and I started to become, you know, romantically interested in it, you know, I had to arrive in New York, uh, call over as I was to be a consultant at first before I became editor. It just, I mean, the, the, the hugeness of New York, you know, the, the, the materialism of New York. I was struck so much by the wealth, by uh, the, 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 the pace, you know, it was, it was so overwhelming. And yet at the same time, very exciting because, you know, I've always been, you know, a woman of the arena, if you like. and. I wanted to be in the big time, and New York was the big time. That's where I wanted to be. Um, you have a very funny uh, story about what you were listening to on the radio in the cab on the <laughs> night you arrived that introduced yeah. you to an America that 
you probably wouldn't hear the same kind of thing in Britain at that time at any Absolutely. rate. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah, well, I, you know, I get off the plane, uh, British Airways, and I get into this cab, and I start being along, looking at the skyscrapers, fantasizing about being Dorothy Parker, and suddenly I hear a very strange rasping voice coming out of the front, which the cabbie's listening to, and talking about the most outrageous sexual things on the radio. It went on and on, and I'm thinking... What is the hell is he listening to? Turns out it's, I ask him, and he says, it's, it's Dr. Ruth, he says. <laughs> so this is my introduction to New York City, which is like, it's a definitely a new frontier. <laughs> not the BBC, not Radio <laughs> 4, I can tell you that. <laughs> well, um, you know, you describe, well, first I have to ask you about the diaries, um, because you wrote diaries. I saw you on CBS the other day, there are these old no school notebooks, and I have to say, after reading this book, I was exhausted just reading it. Um, how did you find time to write diaries, and why did you want to? Had you always been writing diaries? Well, I've always been a diarist, yeah. I mean, I started writing diaries at 10, and I think that you either are, uh, sort of, you either have that need to, to, to write. I guess it's because I'm, I have a writer's temperament, and I've, I'm a kind of born reporter. And I began to feel, the more I kept my diary, that a, sort of a day unrecorded was a day spent asleep in a funny way that unless unless one had recorded it there was no point in having lived it so that became a very sort of deep feeling for me and I used to come in home full of my observations and I felt the need to unload them diaries are also very therapeutic they actually help you organize your thoughts and when I first came to New York my husband was working in Washington everything was new everything was coming at me with such velocity writing the diary became a way to sort of calm myself and sort it out in my mind and by the time I'd written an entry I felt sort of the day had, you know, had reached some closure. So it was a sort of a need. Mm -hmm. And um, I kept it voluminous in those days because I think, first of all, I didn't have children for the first two years. So, you know, I didn't have, as I later got to be, this crazy juggling act that we all do. And also my husband was working away, as I said. And, you know, it was pre-digital. So there wasn't as much to do. And I used to come home, watch a bit of TV, and then I would write my diary. Well, they're full of wonderful observations, which we'll get to. Um, but I wanted to talk a little bit about the courtship uh, with Vanity Fair. You were a consultant. It was clear that that wasn't going to work and there needed to be a new editor. Um, just talk about that because you talk about a little bit about your fear of being eaten alive in New York, which um, for those of us who know you now, I think is sort of a quaint thing to think about uh, <laughs> well, I because I think 30. you're up for everyone. And that's what is also amazing. You're a young woman dealing with, frankly, a lot of old men. Yeah, <laughs> certainly. Well, what else, what else was there? In fact, when I saw the CBS clip, I was amused to see myself, age 30, presenting the magazine to the whole of the Condé Nast management, and they are all white men, all around the table, and I didn't even notice it at the time. It was plus just, a change. Yeah, plus a change. <laughs> it was just the way the world looked, you know? The way the world still looks. But. Uh, I was brought in because uh, it had two editors in nine months. It launched Vanity Fair again in 1984, brought it back from the dead in the 1930s when it closed. Uh, Cy Newhouse, who had recently become, took, taken it over his inheritance at Condé Nast, uh, wanted to now have world domination in magazines. He wanted to bring back Vanity Fair and launch things, and he eventually bought The New Yorker. So he was in the kind of very expansionist mood. So with a great deal of hype and fanfare and glamour that hadn't yet happened, they launched Vanity Fair. Uh, and they hired an editor, and unfortunately, after all the hype, which so often happens with hype, it was, alas, a turkey. It just died, and it became an object of derision. So they had to get rid of him. 
And first of all, they asked, they looked around, looked around, they didn't have anybody. I had just been editing Tatler, which they just bought. They thought maybe I could come in and sort of help and bring in the old editor at Vogue, the features editor who'd been, who was about 75 and who you know, was an in-house person. They would give him the editorship and I would be the sort of young, buzzy consultant who could help him. So I arrived to help old Leo Lerman. Unfortunately, as I recount, Leo Lerman was wildly threatened by me, completely hostile to me. He wanted nothing to do with me. But it was a bit like being at summer school before term starts, you know? You were able to actually see everybody in the office, get to know everybody. And I gradually began to realize, uh, because first of all, they'd said to me, would you like to do the job? And I had sort of run away. I was scared. I, I thought it was too much. New York was scary. My husband was still in England. So I said, I'll be this consultant. And I came in and I began to realize I wimped out. I completely wimped out. I should be the editor of this magazine. These people cannot do it. You know, it's, this guy is like everything out of his mouth is some piece of received wisdom. You know, the ideas of the stories are completely old. Uh, everybody around him just, you know, is just giggling. And, you know, when they're not in his office, this is ridiculous. I can do this job. So at the end of three months, I realized this wasn't going to work. And so Sign Uhas called me up and he said to me, you know, why don't you stay? Why are you going back to England? And I said, well, I don't want to do anything except edit this magazine. And if you want to give me the editorship, I can do this magazine and I'm going to go back to London now. And off I went. Very cocky behavior when you think about it. I was 30 years old. I mean, what did I get off really saying to the chairman of Condé Nast, you know, either it's the editorship, it's my way or the highway. But I think when you're young, you're sort of brazen and you kind of uh, think you can do things. And so I leapt on a plane back to London and then I sat there sort of fretting, you know, for the next three or four months that I'd blown it, that in fact I'd been, you know, overplayed my hand. But they came back and they asked me to do it. And then my adventures in the diary begin. Um, well, I think we could all take a lesson from being as cocky as that. Um, now, I'm really interested in reading the diary and... Uh, sort of the way you think about magazines. You obviously love magazines. It's sort of in your soul. But I love the way that you think about what were they like before and how you study, you know, these magazines earlier on, which you also did with The New Yorker. Um, and I wanted you to talk a bit about the things that you wanted to bring to Vanity Fair and the, the thing that I think was the signature that you brought in particular, extraordinary, well-reported writing. But I think you know, people put premium on words in a magazine, as you did. But I think you sort of saw the not yet fully realized potential of non-news photos. Yeah. Um, talk about that, because you developed, you know, amazing relationships with Annie Leibovitz and Harry Benson and her Brits. And, you know, those photos from that period are still iconic. Mm -hmm. um, so talk about that part of, of what you wanted to do with Vanity Fair. Well, I, I think... Being a magazine editor is definitely a twofold skill set. I mean, I think you need to be, obviously, uh, you know, uh, somebody who, who cares enormously about words, but pictures are really important too. And I sometimes, you know, have said to people, being an editor is not about a bunch of very good articles with a staple through it. You can have six amazing articles which do not make a good magazine when you see the whole, the whole together. It's really the way the pieces play off one another and the way the visuals pace the magazine and how you want to go from a, you know, a wonderfully uh, dynamic, sort of striking uh, portrait of somebody you know, who's the most kind of elegant and beautiful 
and then you turn into something that's gritty and reported and you know a photograph that's perhaps by a war photographer like a Don McCullen or someone of that ilk so that you have this kind of marvelous sense of constantly being st stopped in your track by a, a new kind of a, 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 a visual taste thing that happens to you as, as you read. I think that the uh, actual pagination of a magazine is terribly important, how you, you, know, how you choose to, to lay it out in terms of both the design, which I always favor as a very strong, clean, uh, unfussy thing. I don't like magazines that are a riot of type. I don't like fancy typefaces. And I mean, there's certain magazines, I look at them now, they're so badly designed. You know, there's a great piece there, but you can't find it or see it. It's just all over-designed, over-art-directed. I've always liked that very strong, clean, classical design with strong, clean headlines, which make the photographs breathe and live. And uh, you want to have a, a, a combination of high and low and pleasure and challenge and all of those things that make you constantly keep turning the page and not want to put it down. And it is a kind of a, a feel that you developed. It's very much like putting on a show in the same way you want to have a, a star who opens and then you go to the second act and you have some humor and you have some uh, escapist joy. So that's really how we always, I always thought about magazines was that kind of array uh, uh, of content that, that played off each other. And it was a crazy time, that period of the 80s, um, the Reagan heyday, a lot of um, wealth and just status in the world that you encountered and wrote about and were a part of, but were also observing. Um, and I, I was really struck by how you're almost conflicted by it. You know, the part of you that just wants to curl up with the duvet and a good book of poetry, and then the need to be out there um, and be part of it. Um, just, just talk a little bit about that just pace, which is yeah. dizzying and it just seems so... That, that world was such a bubble. It ways. was a bubble, but, you know, I feel that an editor has to... Uh, you know, you, you, an editor's job is to sort of reflect, explain, um, uh, predict the sort of front edge of the culture, if you like. And the Reagan years were extremely affluent for those in that echelon of society, while at the other end, of course, there were many people who were feeling the downside of all of that, uh, you know, mad spending bubble that was going on on one level of society. There was a whole bunch of people who were not feeling that. And actually, the undertow of the darker side is also running through the book with the AIDS epidemic and the sense that this is all so precarious and also, in a way, decadent, actually, at the time. But I also found it wonderful material and the stuff literally of Vanity, Thackeray's Vanity Fair. I mean, that's what we were doing. So it required the people who could chronicle that. And uh, I discovered uh, this, uh, an, a film producer who was down on his luck, who turned out to be Dominic Dunn, who had uh, uh, an extraordinary voice. And I kind of suggested that he keep a diary and that he become start doing magazine pieces. And it turned out that Dominic Dunn was the absolutely right voice to sort of chronicle that period because he was, again, both insider-outsider. He was a Hollywood producer. He knew Park Avenue. He was a great sort of socialite on one level. On the other hand, he'd been down on his luck. He was been in AA. He'd seen the downside. He'd been on the skids. It made him a great observer and a great journalist. And of course, he also had the tragedy of his daughter being murdered, which meant that he had a great sense of criminal justice. And he became our sort of 
crime, you know, social world axis writer, and really sort of helped to define those times, those great trials like the Klaus von Bülow trial and the Menendez brothers, and then later, of course, O.J. Simpson. These were the meat, as a way, that was a fantastic material for Dominic Dunn. And then visually, I took the um, fashion photographer, Helmut Newton, who'd never really done journalism before, and I got Helmut to start photographing these pieces with Dominic so that the two of them would go out as a team. And it created a very sort of sexy combo, actually, the two of them, you know, the sort of high gloss with a kind of dark edge of, of Helmut, and then this wonderful mellow voice of Nick Dunn, who was the insider-outsider reporter who broke so much news. It was, a, it was an absolutely golden combo. And then there were others like Marie Brenner and Gail Sheehy, who also brought extraordinary business pieces, political pieces. But you mentioned about the great photographers, and of course, I was so lucky to work with Annie Leibovitz. And when I first arrived at Vanity Fair, uh, you know, when it was all such a big mess, a classic glass cliff situation I came into, I had to go in over the weekend and, and redesign the magazine and spent four days with the art department just hurling things out in and out and like making the new design that we had to do fast before the next issue. And I started to ransack the art department for photographs. I knew there were drawers full of treasures. I just sensed that there was, must be these photographs that this very profligate magazine had just been assigning, 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 that there's bound to be some great stuff. And lo, what did I find when I opened the drawer in the art department was an unpublished, fantastic portfolio that Annie Leibovitz had done of comedians uh, in every shape and form. I mean, there was Whoopi Goldberg in the famous uh, Bath of Milk uh, which became an iconic picture. And there was Pee Wee Herman hanging upside down from a lamp. And there was all of these hilarious uh, pictures of these comedians in different situations. And so I put them all into the magazine, gave it 10 pages, and I called it, it was the April issue, so we called it April Fools. And it was absolutely glorious. And that was the sort of beginning of my collaboration with Annie, who was thrilled to have been sort of brought out of obscurity from, in, she was very famous at Rolling Stone, then hired by Vanity Fair and had kind of not been used. So this was the beginning of our great collaboration. And we did so many great uh, portfolios, covers. You know, She became the iconic uh, visual definer, really, of, of Vanity Fair's whole look and feel. And you know, I think the other thing you managed so beautifully, it was a very, um, it was a very eclectic magazine, because most of us are. We like pop. We like politics, we like literature, and you kind of satisfied all those urges. Um, and that was very distinguishing, I think, about the magazine. But I want to play a little word association with you, because I think that um, some of the things that... Uh, I think you... There are things that are... Um, that are commented on about you that I think if you were a man... Maybe you might not have heard this if you were a man doing exactly what you did to Vanity Fair. So uh, I'm going to quote from the diary. Uh, and what I love about this is you're so, you're so aware and you can write this stuff down in the moment. Um, so the word buzz, I think that is probably the word most often associated with Tina. Some people look upon that as a bad thing. I actually think that's a very good thing. Um, 
But you write, I'm sick of people writing about the buzz I create with Vanity Fair. Buzz sounds like something graded, uh, grafted on, something fake and manufactured. It's a put down, a dismissal of impact, a way to minimize ability to identify stories people want to read and talk about. They call it buzz, I call it engagement. I feel nagging, a nagging sense this buzz bullshit would not keep being said about a male editor. And the fact that you use the word engagement back in the mid-1980s, if you go to any media company now, the only word that people care about is audience engagement. Right, well, I mean, I never understood why buzz always sounded like, you know, sort of buzz, you know, as if you were kind of... Uh, this uh, frou-frou merchant who came spinning in on your high heels with the kind of, you know, plates spinning over you. Uh, but, you know, it, it's true. I mean, I believe that if you put out a magazine, your role is to, you know, seduce, fascinate, illuminate. And if you do those three things, people are going to talk about it. Your role as an editor is not to send people to sleep. <laughs> your role <laughs> as an editor is to have people stimulated enough that they talk to each other about it. And if that's buzz, that's what I do. And I hope everybody who puts on a TV show or a, writes a book wants people, want people to be uh, intrigued enough to, to, to share it. You know, so it's, uh, but it is uh, an interesting thing uh, that uh, those kind of words, and, and, and you know, words like dishy and perky, and I mean, you know, we all know those words, right? Yeah, <laughs> we do. Um, gossip. Gossip, yeah. Gossip is a kind of addiction like overeating or drinking. Um, I think that the stories of the last month have shown us the value of gossip. Every right. office has had gossip about things that have turned out to be mm -hmm. true. So talk about your attitude and your feelings about gossip. Well, I do agree. Uh, I mean, gossip is the way you get a lead, right? I mean, gossip is often true uh, or certainly has enough of a, you know, uh, a center, a kernel to it that makes you want to follow a story. And, and as you say, the gossip we've seen about so many people recently has turned out to, in fact, be something much more egregious than what we even knew in the gossip. So I, I think there's a big value to gossip. <clears throat> I think, it, obviously, gossip becomes maligned very easily, too. Right. And, uh, you know, it's <clears throat> endless character assassination and... Uh, and I think, unfortunately, in, in the sort of, of digital age, the, the outlets are so voluminous and multi multiple that it can also be extremely damaging. So, uh, you know, gossip is a double-edged sword, but gossip should be respected also. Serious. Serious. You talk about, you know, that there was this sort of sense in the media world at the time, well, some people are serious journalists and some outlets are doing serious things and... By definition, that means other outlets are not. Um. Well, that's also, it's, that's very interesting, actually. I, I feel strongly coming from London that the European media is far more attuned to uh, the serious being what a person says, not the outlet it necessarily appears in. There's a literary tradition, really, amongst um, British journalists, actually, of sometimes very high-caliber literary people you know, the Anthony Burgesses or the John le Carres or all those kind of writers who will quite happily write a piece for a tabloid newspaper if the, if the fee's good. They don't feel that they're demeaned by writing in those outlets. I think America's far more sort of, uh, a little bit more sort of high-minded, high more, a little more sententious about, you know, this is not appropriate for this august publication. But I, I've never felt that. I think that a, a magazine or a periodical really is defined 
by the seriousness of whatever the contributor is saying, not whether or not it appears next to a photograph of a movie star or you know, a, a lighter story. In fact, as a matter of fact, sometimes those other elements can make that piece stand out even more. That brings me to high-low. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Uh, yeah, I mean, I, 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 it's, it's, it's a, you need the, the, the relief when you're reading something of being able to be both light and, and, and heavy. You do not want to have, nobody wants a solid diet of gravitas, you know? I mean, you just just start to not be able to, 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 to absorb it. It's much better to have gravitas next to something which also then, you know, freshens the palate like a sorbet course. So I, I, I'm a big, fa a big believer in in high-low. I think it's kind of what everybody really wants, if they're being honest. And I frequently had, it very interesting when I was editing Vanity Fair, that, you know, very august people at times would say to me, oh, I love the piece on Deborah Winger. You know, you think, wait a minute, you were supposed to be reading the piece about, you know, Iraq and, and, and <laughs> Gulf War One. You know, that was your piece. Like, why do you like this? And it, but then it made me smile. I would think I'm so happy because they'd actually gone from the original piece that really was their piece, but then they grazed over to read the Deborah Winger piece and they found it fun. And the important pact for the reader, I think, is that the you do the, the Deborah Winger piece as well in its own way you know, as you do the piece on Iraq. That's the important thing. You don't say, here's a really good piece and here's this piece of crap that's just meant to entertain you. The entertaining piece should really also be as, as good as it can get in that genre. So we had a lot of very good celebrity writers, actually, who were able to do... Of course, at that time, the PRs were, were rampant, but they were not as rampant as today. So right. you had more access, at least, than you do now. Although we were always fighting with the PRs, which is quite a theme in the book. We're always yes, it is a big theme in the book. huge fights with PRs. <laughs> um, I don't even know how people manage it today, because uh, there are so many outlets. So um, controlled. Yeah, and... And there are opportunities for people to reach the audience directly. Correct. So they don't need the, the middle person. Um, I want to go back to the 80s because this was clearly a time when there weren't a lot of female um, leaders in newsrooms. Sadly, as Tina and I were discussing earlier, this is a time now where there aren't a lot of female leaders <laughs> in newsrooms either. Um, but I, I, I wanted... It wanted you to talk about what it was like. Um, in the diary, you note, um, you know, most of my role models have been men. They always had the lives I wanted. And you quote Gloria Steinem as saying, become the man you want to marry. Um, what was it like being a, a woman in the 80s in this very high-powered, very male-dominated world where not only were you a woman, but you were young? Well, I mean, I think, you know, you blaze ahead when you're young, so you notice it a bit less. I noticed it more when I looked back on what I went through, actually, because I think the main thing one had to deal with was just being underestimated all the time, always somewhat, uh, you know, as we were talking, a little dist for, for, in ways that you would not have been if, had you been a man doing the same thing. But for some ways, I also made that my fuel. You know, I also just sort of, it, it spurred me on, you know, to want to... To, to achieve. I got frustrated, uh, which is another theme in the diary, by somehow feeling that I was always kept out of the business of the magazine. That there was a, and now when I see that clip and I see all those men sitting around the table, I realize that those instincts were completely correct. I mean, there was no invitation into that world of the big strategic thoughts about the magazine. And yet, you know, I came up with some of them. Obviously, I, I turned around the magazine, I turned it into a market leader. And in fact, I also had very good ideas. Like I wanted, I launched uh, the London Vanity Fair with the concept of really making it the same magazine with just a few changes. 
and uh, selling advertising there, which made it another big profit center. Mm -hmm. Actually, I conceived the idea, I went over there, I promoted it, and I turned it into a great success, which was, became a real revenue stream. And yet, you know, I would find again and again that I was never discussed about a new publisher of the magazine be hard. I literally would never be asked, you know, like, what did I think of this person? As if I was completely irrelevant. Uh, to how the, much to of that was to do, do you think, with the times? I mean, we've talked about serious journalism versus others. And I think for the longest time in journalism, there's been this sense that, oh, journalists do not sully themselves with the business. Um, but when you're a newsroom leader, I think you have to. It, was that sort of well, something the, they didn't it was, it want? Was a, it was a bit of that. But I also found that I just couldn't get heard. And I did feel that was very much about being a woman. I mean, when I went to The New Yorker, I had... Uh, the right ideas completely about what should happen. I mean, at the end of Vanity Fair, I was approached to do make it into a TV show, and Cy Newhouse completely blew the idea out. Then I went to The New Yorker, had a fantastic time there for seven and a half years, but at the end of it, I started to feel, I want The New Yorker to be more than just a magazine. It could be a radio show, it can be a book company, it can be because many a, a, a movie producer would approach us for the rights mm -hmm. of our stories, and I thought we should actually have our own production company. And I really wanted it to be a much more lateral uh, thing with uh, 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 the magazine as a sort of center and then around it an ecosystem of uh, other kinds of media. And this was 1998, and, and again, Cy Newhouse completely blew me out. He just wasn't interested. And I, I got so frustrated, I felt, why doesn't he see it? And I did feel somehow, I wondered you know, if I'd been a male voice saying these mm -hmm. things. I, he wouldn't have been a sort of, don't bother your pretty head about it, you know, just go off and edit the magazine. Please don't bother me with this. And of course, 20 years later, that's what everyone is doing, right? right? I mean, that is, I mean, imagine <laughs> if we'd done it then. Right. I mean, I, I remember saying to him, we could be like the HBO of print and him just looking at me as if I was sort of, you know, she's <laughs> such a ditz, you know. Um, what a shame, you know. And of course, it's why I left. So, right. um, to well, go I, off and do that. It's interesting. This is also a time when you became a mother. Mm -hmm. um, and some of your staff became mothers too. Um, it was, you know, probably unheard of to have leaders who were mothers as opposed to fathers. I was the first, it was very funny, the, the, um, uh, the, the human resources person at Condé Nast is one of the sort of heroes of the book. I absolutely loved her. She was this, I admired her so much. She was so cool and she was a real kind of businesswoman like I'd never kind of really seen before in London. And when I told her that I was pregnant, she said, that's excellent. We can now t test our maternity po policy here. <laughs> And that was the first, I was the first one to have, to have that happen, to have, the, I was the first kind of editor-in-chief to ever had a, have a child at, at Conlin Ast. And, you know, I, I uh, it, so in that sense, we did, I did sort of break some ground there, but then I hired my, a lot of my team, or two or three of my team also had, had babies at the same time, and it was wonderful. We developed this kind of secret, kind of little club between us in a way where we had each other's backs, we... Um, uh, when my managing editor, who was so critical to the success of the magazine, got pregnant sh uh, shortly, uh, six months before I did or after I did, I can't remember which now, I had this brainwave of asking the, for my former managing editor at Tatler to come take a sabbatical and come and slip into her job. And it was really the sort of first time anyone had had, quote, maternity cover, which has really become a sort of a thing here now. Right. It worked brilliantly. She arrived like Mary Poppins with a big bag <laughs> and her umbrella descended into the job 
And of course, knew my ways completely. And editing, managing one magazine is not that different from managing another. Within a couple of weeks, I didn't even notice Pam had gone off, even though she was my right hand. And then after three months, she took, you know, she flew off on her umbrella back to London. And she came back again <laughs> when Pam had uh, had uh, had her second child. And since I left, I then said, Graydon Carter's going to need a Pam. I'm taking Pam, guys. I can't function without Pam to the New Yorker. And Chris Garrett, as her name is, she's still there. So the, my maternity cover stayed for 25 years after I left. I think there are probably a few HR departments who you could talk to, even today. Um, you know, I, I know we want to have time for questions. Uh, I think the book reveals, you know, the challenges of being a mother, a working mother. Your son was born prematurely and he had difficulties. And I, I think something that comes across, which hasn't people haven't been talking about is you're a doting wife and mother <laughs> and um, you know you planned your life so that you wouldn't be far away from your child for very long yeah. and all these kinds of details which I think yeah. people should take note of because I think that that's a part of you and who you are and you know contributed to your success well I, I mean at one point in the diary I said and it kind of struck me when I was reading it you know you, people confuse a career with a life you know and, and you shouldn't because however much I loved my career, and I did. I mean, the book is really a love affair about a career, and a young career. Uh, nonetheless, when I had first Georgie, who had Asperger's, uh, and then Izzy, uh, who's, uh, you know, came five years later, my world completely changed, and this whole question of how you integrate your child, you know, you have two passions now. You have your, your work, which was always a passion, but then you have, of course, this bigger other passion which is uh, your family and how you can try to integrate those things and everything always seems a trade-off so there's a theme obviously which many working mothers will completely I suppose you know understand which is however whatever echelon you're in it's, it's the same I mean you are always thinking am I doing this right and you look constantly for that one person who can tell you how to do it I mean for years I would say to women who had children and jobs like how do you do it thinking that there was this Rosetta Stone <laughs> that somebody there out there had the answer course there's no answer you make it up as you go you along <laughs> and and in the book it's constant chaos backstage right it's always chaos because you're balancing the house of cards well the last thing I want to talk about is um you know the thing that this book demonstrates yet again I think for people who know you as you know a world-class editor they probably don't think of you as also a fantastic reporter and a wonderful writer um, for those Kim of us Rita. who've read the Diana Chronicles, we know both those things are in evident in that book. And I, I just want to read a few things that um, you wrote in the moment in the mid-80s that are just beautiful observations that I could never have done after going to, you know, the fifth black tie party event of the evening. Um, I didn't drink, which was very, very useful. <laughs> that is clearly very useful. Um, you describe a woman with the wind tunnel look of a recent facelift. Uh, creamy TV anchor Diane Sawyer, which is the most perfect description of Diane Sawyer. Uh, is Rudy Giuliani a latter-day Elliot Ness or just a media-hungry careerist? <laughs> Boris Johnson is an epic shit. And he still is. <laughs> <laughs> yes, you were hoped that it would end it badly, but it didn't, or it might have ended badly for all the rest of us. Um, yeah, unfortunately. And then, of course, the the person whose name we may not have to mention, but is part of our everyday lives. Um, you talked about, you uh, exerted the uh, art of the deal. 
and you said, it has a crassness I like. Okay, this is in 1987. There is something authentic about Trump's bullshit. <laughs> anyway, it feels when you finished it as if you've been nose to nose for four hours with an entertaining con man, and I suspect the American public will like nothing better. Alas, that was true. <laughs> <laughs> so yes, well, you know, Trump flits through this book in, in like a sort of comedic character uh, uh, who gets less and less funny as time goes right. by because when we started to really cover him in depth, uh, we uncovered great many things that he didn't like about his financial predicament and his bankruptcies and all of that. And then his very uh, volatile period of his divorce and so on. And in fact, Marie Brenner, you know, covered him in ways that he didn't like at all to such an extent that at a black tie benefit that she sat at, six months after her piece appeared in which she had described his brother saying that he was the, like the cake, he was the kid who threw cake at the birthday party, <laughs> which is sort of perfect, and that he had Hitler's speeches uh, uh, in his office, which really made a lot of news. And at that dinner, uh, she was sitting there having dinner and she suddenly felt something cold uh, uh, going down her back and she looked behind and she thought it was something from the waiter that he'd spilled. And then she saw Donald Trump, you know, fleeing off across the, the dining room, having emptied wine down her back, which he later said he'd emptied a bottle, of course, not a glass, because that is the way Donald Trump is. But it was pretty amazing behavior. I think um, some of your observations of many people are, you know, sort of reveal the adage that when you become an adult, you are who you are. And when you turn 50 or 60 or 70, you're probably not going to change. Um, Probably not. So I think that uh, the book is, I know we want to have questions. The book is really a riot. I recommend it to people because it takes you away to a different time and place. And sometimes we all need to be taken away to a different time and place. And when you look at the photos, you will remember all those photos from Vanity Fair. And you'll think, wow, that was really iconic. Okay, great. Well, Tina, thank you so much. It was a thank pleasure. You. Thank you so much. The book is called The Vanity Fair Diaries. Author Tina Brown and I spoke at Politics and Prose at the Wharf in Washington, D.C. You can read about this and more great books by women authors at 52 Weeks, 52 Books, 52Women.com. And subscribe to this podcast at all great purveyors of podcasts.